0: Mark chapter 7. This is going to be an interesting one. And I'm going to start a long way away from Mark chapter 7. Um, in fact, I'm going to just start by talking about some names. Um, there are a few names that we just automatically associate with evil. Fictitiously, the name Cruella Deville just makes you think of someone evil. And it partly is because her name literally is Cruel Devil. Um, so you have no surprise that she grew up to become a puppy murderer. Um, her name is Cruel Devil. Historically, we can look at you know Hitler, of course, tops every list that you'll find on the internet of the most evil people in history. Stalin is usually right up there at numbers two, responsible for more deaths than Hitler. And then you'll get a random collection of people in rounds three through ten of various evil Bents. Men like Vlad the Impaler (laughs) who uh, was the inspiration for the character of Dracula but you know you know this is a bad dude if his name is Vlad and his nickname is The Impaler, right? It's like Jack the Ripper or something like that, This is, or even the Terrible. This is not like somebody you want to have over for dinner on a Tuesday night and watch a movie on the couch together with. And in fiction, we have those Cruella de Vils, and we have Saurons, and Thanoses, and Voldemorts, and all these people who we just associate almost automatically with evil. They are bad, bad people. There's something wrong with them. Something is broken. They are evil. Well, the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have had a few names that would have made it on their top ten list. Uh, One of them would have been Haman, a character in the story of Esther. In fact, if you ever study how the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim, when they they will read the the book of Esther, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, and Haman is someone who uh, tried to to eliminate the Jewish people, uh, every time Haman's name is mentioned as that reading of Esther takes place during this feast, Haman is booed. The Jewish people just boo, and it's kind of a, almost an a, a audience interaction joke anymore that Haman just becomes he's such a hated character in this story that he is audibly booed. Well, for the Jews, you could also add Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, other evil people that tried to eliminate their people. But perhaps no one has become more infamous for evil in Jewish history then a lady from the north of Israel, from just north of Israel, named Jezebel. Jezebel. I mean, the name just sounds evil, and I really, really hope that no one is visiting here who named their daughter Jezebel. I, I freaked out about this a little bit, we discussed it, and I just don't think that happens. I tried to find out if anybody names their name. Usually, you name a mean cat, Jezebel, and not a person. But if you did, I apologize. I know you're probably not going to come back to our church, and I'm sorry.) <laughs> But we associate, and certainly the Jewish people, associated that name with evil. And you know someone is evil when no one names their children that anymore, hopefully. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with Jezebel, other than her name's evil connotations, she was a princess from Sidon, which is north of Israel along the Mediterranean coast, part of the, the, uh, the realm of Phoenicia. She married the king of Israel, Ahab, for political reasons. They came together. And it was quite a savvy move by Ahab to open up some trade and to bring some peace to his country. And so Ahab married this princess from Sidon named Jezebel. She was likely also some form of priestess. And would have been associated with the worship of the Canaanite god, Baal. And if you study the worship of that god, he's not a nice god. The worship of him involves some very rather uncomfortable things that I won't talk about here. But Jezebel brought the worship of Baal to Israel. When she married Ahab, she didn't convert. She kept her worship of Baal and in fact brought her priests to Israel and Ahab welcomed them in and they. You kind of forgot that commandment, I am Yahweh your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And so Ahab allowed his wife to bring in the worship of Baal, and the people began to move astray from the Lord their God. In fact, Jezebel slaughtered many of the prophets of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And she was ultimately challenged in that great story by Elijah on Mount Carmel near her hometown where the two altars were set up and you remember the priests of Baal dancing around, calling for Baal to rain down fire on their sacrifice and nothing happened. And then Elijah calls on God and God sends fire and consumes the sacrifice and the altar and the people rise up against the priests. But Jezebel came after Elijah. Elijah had to run for his life. Jezebel stayed the queen she arranged for the killing of a vineyard owner so that her husband's desire for a little more property and a nice little plot of land could be given to him. And eventually, Jezebel was killed by a guy named Jehu. Jehu is quite an interesting story because Jehu is... Kind of purifying the land, tearing down altars. And Jezebel, after the death of Ahab, is locked up in the castle. She's up on the, some story uh, up above her. Jehu comes in with his horses and his chariots and calls down on Jezebel's servants to throw her down. And they do that. She's killed as she goes in there, trampled under a horse. And uh, forgive the, this is from the Bible, so forgive the, the graphic nature of this. All but her skull and hands were eaten by dogs. It's kind of nice, isn't it? It's in the Bible. That's Jezebel, this evil person who brings wicked worship into God's kingdom. Israel is finally killed. Jezebel hailed from a city named Sidon, north of Israel and a historical enemy of the Israelites. In order to stop the warfare, Ahab, her eventual husband, arranged for this political marriage to broker peace, to set up trade, to bring prosperity, that sort of thing. But Jezebel brought anything but prosperity and peace to Israel. Now, I'm not preaching on that story. It's some background to where we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. Remember Jezebel and her wickedness. Remember where she's from, even. From the north, from a city called Sidon, and we're going to come back to that. But as we enter Mark, we've been going through Mark for quite some months now, and we've gotten quite familiar with all these stories, and we're starting to see these stories compound over and over again. And there's a danger when you're reading the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that you start to read these stories of miracles, and they just get a little bit redundant, right? There's like, is this another blind man that healed? Hadn't I already read this story? Nope, this is a little bit different. Or this is another demon that's cast out. It's another, um, another someone who is healed. All kinds of things happen, and it just gets a bit repetitive. Another hangry group of thousands is fed from a few fish sandwiches, and didn't we already do this one next week? I think we're on the feeding of the four thousand, and there was the feeding of the five thousand. You kind of wonder, is there going to be three thousand? Then two? Is it what? Is there a pattern developing here? What? It just gets a little repetitive if we don't notice something. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John are not just stacking stories one on top of the other like our uncles used to do when we sat around the Thanksgiving table. Just telling random stories that they find interesting. The gospel writers are including layers of details that are often not mentioned in earlier stories or seen in earlier miracles. And they're beginning to just slowly fill out the picture of Jesus by noticing new layers to these miracles. And as we enter Mark 7, we'll see some new layers and some new details to some miracles that seem familiar. These seem like miracles we've heard before, but they're a little bit different. I had two uncles that liked to tell stories. I had a lot of uncles that liked to tell stories. Two of them stand out in particular. My Uncle Rex on my dad's side and my Uncle Bob on my mom's side. Uncle Rex and Uncle Bob often told stories and often you would hear the same stories from Uncle Rex and Uncle Bob over and over and over again. And they quite often added new layers or let's say they embellished new layers to their stories as they told those stories and as these stories compounded for Uncle Rex and Uncle Bob. And for the record, I know I am already this uncle to my nieces and nephews. I've told my stories about injuries to my knee or a baseball injury or softball injuries so many times that my nieces and nephews and my kids Look for the door when I start to tell these stories. It's just, are you going to tell the story again? And that's kind of what the gospels start to feel like. Blind man again, haven't you done this, Mark? Haven't we already visited? Isn't there new stuff coming? Isn't there another type of miracle? That's another blind man, another deaf man, another demon-possessed person. The difference here, though, between my storytelling or Uncle Rex or Uncle Bob's storytelling and Mark's recount of jesus is that mark is not just telling similar stories there are new layers that we'll discover as we walk through each of these miracles and we're going to be in mark chapter 7 verses 24 to 37 there's two stories here i'm going to read them at different times these stories are not just another demon or another blind man there's new thrilling information and that's why I called this sermon A Couple More Miracles. But as I thought about it last night, I wish I would have titled it in parentheses before A Couple More Miracles, not just A Couple More Miracles. Because these are not just A Couple More Miracles. There's some new stuff that we're going to discover, and it's going to be good. So let's pray that the Lord opens our eyes to this as we go into his word. Father, you speak through your word in this amazing majestic way by this power of your spirit to your people and so we ask that your spirit illuminates these stories for us this morning that we see christ afresh that we worship him anew that we love jesus more because of these stories and we pray these things in christ's name amen story number one and from there mark 7 verse 24 From there he arose, Jesus arose, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Remember that one? And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Yeah, yeah. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's interesting. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Well, let's stop for a second and just ask a couple questions about this one, because this is a little bit different than a miracle story. There's a a few more layers than just the standard casting out of demons that we've seen and some intriguing details. And some of you were just maybe asking the question, did Jesus just call a woman a dog? (laughs) Is Jesus a racist misogynist? Some make that claim from this text. And we'll work on that a little bit as we study this text. But it is a little striking what Jesus does there. And it's even perhaps more striking or more interesting what the woman responds. Not with offense, but with kind of an embracing almost of that suggestion. Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, come to rescue his people. He was a Jewish man a Jewish Messiah. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus uh, says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Listen, Jesus was a Jew. He was born to Jews. Mary and Joseph were his parents, his lineage um, of high Jewish descent. In fact, some of the authors of the Gospels go through these genealogies where they particularly note Jesus' Jewishness in his genealogy. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back through Abraham all the way to Adam. But notably, Abraham is part of Jesus' genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to David, the great king of Israel. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, prophesied a Messiah who would deliver their people. God's plan to send a Redeemer from the very beginning pages of the scripture, God's plan to send a Redeemer always did involve a message for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, You can see God's covenant with Abraham for this, but that promise would be fulfilled through the people of Israel. The Messiah would come through the Jewish people. The Jewish people, though, in Jesus' day, easily remembered the Jewish Messiah part, embraced that, looked for that, longed for that, prayed for that, celebrated that, but they also often forgot that Jesus was coming not just for the Jews, but throughout the Old Testament, there's these hints that he is coming for the nations, not just for the Jewish people, but for the nations. So when Jesus comes, and slowly they start to put together the information that this might be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, they might likely ask, why in the world is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, going outside of Jewish territory here? Why is he leaving the Jews and going to Phoenician territory, Tyre and Sidon? And Mark tells us one of the reasons for that, Jesus was tired. He was exhausted. And you remember, like you've you've been here, many of you, for a few months in a row or you've listened online. You've heard miracle after miracle, crowd after crowd, pressing in, pressing in. And Jesus just needs some space. And all you introverts like me say, amen, amen. Thank you for that freedom that you can retreat every once in a while. Jesus needs some space. He's human, and he gets tired. But he goes to a surprising location. He goes to Tyre and throughout the region of Sidon, outside of Jewish territory, to a people that historically are deep enemies of the Jews. For us, this would be like saying, you know, I need a break. I need, I need a vacation. I'm wiped out. It's been a busy season. I'm just going to go to North Korea and chill out for a while. <laughs> like, well, I, I understand the break part, but that doesn't seem to be the solution to rest, if that's what you need. Tyre and Sidon are historic enemies of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, they're denounced by the, but for their evil. They're evil, they're Gentile, they're dogs, is what the Jewish people would have said. But wherever Jesus goes, he can't find that respite. This has happened to him over and over again. He tries to find a little space, but he's got to go rescue the disciples in a storm. He tries to find a little space, but the people find him and crowd around him. He tries to find that respite, but once again, the news of him spreads. He tries to enter this house, but, verse 24, he could not be hidden. You can't keep Jesus hidden. So wherever he goes, he can't find that respite. And here, a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman comes to him. And if you were a good Jew, you kind of growl when you heard the description of her. A Gentile, a Syrophoenician. You even spit on the floor a little bit in disgust. A Gentile, Syrophoenician woman came to him and asked for help. Who does she think she is? She's got a daughter with an affliction. She needs help. And listen, we know this. You know this. There is nothing like the protection of a mother for a beloved child, right? If you want to see a mom do amazing things... Just watch when their child is sick or injured. It's all of a sudden the transformation into a superhero takes place instantaneously and great power and decisive ma- decision-making ability comes upon that person. Boldness like you've never seen before. I tend to be someone who, when my kids get hurt, um, no matter the severity of it, I tell them to walk it off, rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine, it's good character-building time. Marianne's typical reaction is stop the world, let's mortgage the house again, put everything we have, because there's an ingrown toenail, we will do whatever it takes to solve this problem for my beloved babies. The world must stop, and I'm just kind of, I'm very different than Marianne (laughs) in many ways. And this woman Finds Jesus because she has a daughter that needs help. A little daughter. You remember a story back in Mark chapter 5 where a man came to Jesus with a daughter who was sick and dying. Got him Jairus. But in that story, it's very different because that was a man and this is a woman. And no offense, but that culture, the value on men, it's a patriarchal culture, the value of men was higher in Jewish culture that day than women. Wrongly, but it's the way it was culturally. And a Jew was valued more in Jewish society by far than a Gentile woman. And in particular, you'll notice that she's not just a Gentile here, as bad as that is. She's a Syrophoenician. Well, who's the most famous Syrophoenician woman? Growl, spit on the floor. It's Jezebel, right? She comes from Jezebel's territory. So you have this religious leader among the Jews who comes to Jesus and asks for healing with his daughter. And eventually, after an interruption, Jesus does heal her. And here you have this Gentile Syrophoenician Jezebel who comes to Jesus and says, help my daughter. 1 Kings chapter 16, 31 is the introduction to Jezebel in the Old Testament. And you get it, the story starts like this. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife, Ahab, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. Sidon and the Sidonese were historic tormentors of God's people, the Israelites. The Syrophoenicians were Jezebels. They were dogs, and yet, what does Jesus do? Well, it takes a little bit, but he heals her. And you'll notice the little phrase, uh, the little phrase in um, verse 25, little daughter. We've heard that phrase before. That little phrase, that, that phrase of compassion towards this girl that Mark uses is the same one that describes Jairus' daughter. The little daughter is rescued in both of these stories. And so for both the respected Jewish religious leader and the Syrophoenician Gentile dog, the outcome is the same. Jesus cares for this person. He heals. He rescues. Even after this rather uncomfortable exchange of words for us, this dog word, So let's talk about that for a second, okay? Let's talk about that by talking about a tale of two dogs. I'm going to tell you about a few different types of dogs. I've got multiple dogs in each category. I pretend not to like dogs, but as my kids will tell you, I actually do like a few dogs. However, there are some dogs that I do not like. One of them is a dog named Mabel. We have Mabel up there. I hate this dog. This is my sister's dog. She found it on the side of the road and rescued it. And i the word rescue with dogs, like, let's just, I want, I I'm not going to talk about that for a while, okay? Because <laughs> it bugs me. But she found this dog, brought it into their home, spent a bunch of money to get it cleaned up and fixed up. And it's this massive dog. I don't even know what type it is, but it slobbers like crazy. It's the grossest thing in the world. This dog, when I come over, if I'm wearing a hat, it will try to tear out my throat until I take the hat off. As soon as I take the hat off, the dog's the nicest thing in the world, but it's drooling all over the place and you come away from it, it's like you've been bathed in dog phlegm after this dog comes at you it's just disgusting in my sister's house i love my sister she does a great job of keeping a house but this dog is is really really hard to love and i have not even tried i don't (laughs) like this dog can't stand this dog my sister knows it and so she sends me pictures like this that try to make it look cute And you guys all think it's cute, and I'm getting in trouble with some of you, especially my kids, but this is a nasty, nasty dog. I've been in many places where there's these street dogs, like Port-au-Prince, Haiti, or Manila, the Philippines, and you just have these really disgusting dogs that are just street dogs. This dog is like that to me. Dog number one is this mangy mongrel. And if you were to call somebody a dog, street dog, it's an insult. There's another type of dog, right? And for me, it will never compare with anyone else other than Kibbles, my dog, when I was in junior high. There's Kibbles right there. Just a good-looking dog, isn't she? It's my dachshund. Now, it's kind of comical because I was tall and thin in, uh, in junior high and high school, and Kibble's was short and long. And so you have this complete contrast of, of people as we walk around. But I love Kibbles. She was a wonderful, wonderful dog, and she was my companion. Just a great retriever of balls, even though she could barely get her mouth around them. Just a fantastic dog. And reluctantly, I have come to love another dog in our house named Trixie, um, Trixie spends a lot of time this. This is the best picture I could find. One picture from a few years ago that almost shows how much a dog can become part of the family, right? Um, I hate the term fur baby. I don't like it when people refer to their dogs as their kids because that's just messing up the order of creation in many ways. But Trixie has become part of our family. She is a, not just a mangy mongrel, although there are times, believe me. Trixie is more than that. She is a beloved pet. Not on the level of our children, okay? Let's get that straight. There's a division there. But she is a beloved pet. Almost, almost, but not quite a member of the family. Well, mangy mongrel, beloved pet. There's two different words and associations with that for you as well as for me. For Jesus, and there's a little bit of debate among scholars on what he's actually saying here, but quite a few scholars agree that Jesus is using the term for beloved pet more than mangy mongrel. Similar to Jesus, you remember earlier um, in the Gospel of John, when Mary tried to force Jesus to do a miracle, he said to her, my time has not yet come. And that's what's going on here. Jesus' mission of redemption will extend to Gentiles. He is for the Gentiles. And as he uh, dies and rises again, he will instruct his disciples to go to all the nations. But Jesus' identity at this point in the story, his identity as a suffering savior for all nations, for all people, has not yet been fully made known. That hasn't been spelled out yet. It's going to come very quickly in the Gospel of Mark. In just the next chapter, we'll start to see that. The Gentile dogs will be welcomed in. But, like that minivan-driving soccer mom who's told there's a four-hour wait at urgent care, this woman is not ready to wait. My daughter needs help now. David Garland, a commentator on this, says she is willing to accept the role of a dog if it meant getting fed. And the most amazing thing happens here. Jesus responds compassionately. He admires her faith. Her daughter is healed. Even though he doesn't touch her or go near the daughter at all, he just says, your daughter, the demon has left your daughter. That's how powerful Jesus is. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon Jesus cares for all who come to him. I want to stop there and just say, do you do you feel the amazing beauty of that? Jesus cares. There are layers of the story about Jesus that are being added here, and they're revolutionary. The Jews in Jesus' day struggled with Jesus' inclusion or conversation even with the Gentiles because they had an ethnocentric nationalism to their faith. And sadly, a good piece of the American church can adopt that same perspective. But there's other reasons we struggle with this. We struggle personally with this in our day because we're often so proud like the Pharisees of the earlier story to admit and even live out our need. We say, I'll find my own savior. I'll find my own solution. I'll become my own savior. We think we're too proud to need Jesus, even when he compassionately responds to someone who asks him for help. So we either think we're too proud or we know the depths of our sin and are filled with guilt And shame, we know our need, but we still struggle to come to Jesus because we think, I'm not worthy of a Savior's love. That's what could have easily happened for this woman. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a religious ruler like that guy Jairus who Jesus healed his daughter. What right do I have to come to Jesus? And some of us are so filled with guilt and shame that we feel the same way. Jesus is for all who come to him. But often we are too blind to see our need or his ability to save or we think we're too far gone in our guilt and shame. And the good news in the next story is that Jesus opens dead senses so that people can hear and see and speak to him. Look at the story right after this. I've been wrestling with this for a couple weeks trying to figure out why did we choose to do both of these stories together and the more I study it and think about it, the more I wind up realizing, man, Mark just puts things together in ways that just are helpful. And here's the next story. Then, after this journey to Tyre and Sidon, then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. That's another Gentile area, okay? The Decapolis is a Gentile area. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. This was before COVID. And looking up to heaven, (laughs) Jesus sighed and moaned. He moaned and said to him, "Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Man, that's amazing. Now, did you notice how different that miracle is? Miracle number one, Jesus says the demon has left. It doesn't even look like Jesus actively does anything for this demon to leave the daughter, and yet she's healed. Miracle number two, Jesus does all kinds of stuff that would make you and I very uncomfortable, right? I tried to get one of my children to help me illustrate this, and they said, oh, sure, I'll do it. And then I read the text, like, nope, I am not going to let you grab my tongue in front of the church because that's weird. Why did Jesus do that? I'll tell you in just a little bit. But let me just kind of tell you about the big picture of this miracle because as Mark is continuing to tell the story of Jesus, he's making the argument by showing stories that Jesus is divine, divine. Jesus is God. We've seen that in miracle after miracle after miracle. And here's another miracle that adds a layer to that argument that Jesus is God in flesh. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35 says this, "'The glory of Lebanon, which is north of Israel, "'shall be given to the wilderness, "'the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. "'They shall see the glory of the Lord, "'the majesty of our God.'" Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And after Jesus heals this man, Mark chapter seven, verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, big picture principle or understanding number one, Jesus is coming to more than just Israel. Jesus is for more than just the Jews. Here's a Gentile man who is healed by Jesus. Big picture number two, Jesus can awaken the senses of those who are unable to hear him. Praise God for that truth because you and I desperately need that. The spiritual reality is even greater than the physical reality. We can't see Jesus as God without him opening our eyes. We can't hear his word without him opening his, our ears. And throughout Mark, the, the physical miracles point to that greater spiritual reality that Jesus opens the eyes of blind the blind, us. Jesus opens the ears of the deaf, us. Jesus awakens the senses of those unable to hear him. It's amazing stuff in this passage. But what can happen is sometimes with those big theological arguments, which are great in and of themselves, we miss the small picture of this miracle. And here's the small picture. Jesus cares for the outcast. Don't miss that in this. Because sometimes, especially me, like I've been going through Mark and I'm like, wow, look at Mark's amazing theological argument for the divinity of Christ, for the divinity of Jesus. And here, he cares for a guy. It's a beautiful truth. It's a personal touch to this miracle that highlights the simple beauty of Jesus' compassion to those in need. You'll notice that in a couple ways. One is Jesus removes this man from the crowd. Do you notice that little detail there? James Edwards, another commentator, says, by removing him from the crowd, Jesus signifies that he is not simply a problem, but a unique individual. This is not just a way for Jesus to give an illustration. This is not, I'm just going to use you as a, an object lesson. Jesus cares for this person and pulls him away from the crowd. He would have felt that, that looking and, and distance from the crowd from he would have known that well. But here Jesus pulls him aside one-on-one and cares for him. It's beautiful. And the man can't hear. So when Jesus says "Ephatha," he doesn't hear it. The man can't hear, so what does Jesus do? He touches him, his ears, his tongue. He uses other sensory means that this man would have appreciated more than you and I. He cared for this man in a beautiful, simple way. And so that big picture of the argument of Jesus' divinity, that's all throughout these passages, and it's showing Jesus' movement out towards the Gentiles. A revolutionary turn of events is coming because the Jewish Messiah is not just for the Jews. He's also for Syrophoenicians and Decapolites. But the small picture is important here. Jesus cares for needy people. Sometimes those of us that like to argue theology and read big theological books miss that truth. Jesus cares for needy people. So, while the Pharisees in the earlier story that Nate covered last week are arguing about the intricacies of the law, how much do we have to wash our hands, why aren't you washing your hands like we are commanded to do, all that kind of theological argument, they fail to realize that the Savior is with them. And outsiders now, outsiders, dogs like the Syrophoenician woman and the Decapolite man, simply receive. Jesus is with them. Listen, some of us can be so argumentative about the fine points of theological treatises that we are almost unable to recognize the beautiful presence of our Savior. Guilty. What does Jesus require? Theological arguments are not bad, (laughs) but here's what Jesus requires. Mark 10, a few chapters later, 10 verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Listen, Mark is answering some massive and significant and important and complex theological questions. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Why did Jesus come to earth? What does following him entail? But Mark is also showing the simple beauty that even for those outside who are enemies of God's people, Jesus cares. He loves. He rescues. He saves. And this is such good news for you and I. Romans chapter 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself sometimes wonder what what keeps people from enjoying the presence of God. And I think in this chapter, chapter 7 as a whole, you see a number of people and a number of directions that help us see what might keep us from enjoying the presence of God. Some, some just like to argue theology too much. And theological arguments devoid of worship can get in the way of enjoying the presence of our god we love to, here at cross of grace we love to discuss theology don't get me wrong we're not anti-theology um I, I work in theological education so i'm a big proponent of theology i like theology we love to discuss it we even love to argue about it here it's good it's fun it's interesting we love to tackle scripture and figure out what is what is god doing how does this all work out and How do these things, what is truth here? But we do it with an end goal of worship. Our theology must lead to doxology, to the praise of God, and our discussions about God must lead to songs, to him. And sometimes our theological arguments, like those Pharisees earlier in the chapter, get in the way of enjoying the presence of Jesus. For some of us, it's our pride I'm good on my own. I can find my own savior. I can be my own savior. I can find something else to be my own savior. No, you can't. You will try, and you will try different things, but you will not find anything like Jesus. All that you're seeking in life can only be fulfilled in Jesus. He brings light to the bleak picture of our lives. He welcomes the humble. So for those of you who are proud... Humble yourselves. Receive from Jesus like these individuals here. For some of us, our guilt and our shame results in distance, like that woman could have easily felt. We know our sin. We feel our sin. We know our past. We know the stain of sin in our life. Why would Jesus ever welcome me? Jesus welcomes all those who come to him in faith whether that's tax collectors, whether that's prostitutes, whether that's religious freaks or lepers, they are all welcomed by Jesus. The proud are the ones who are kept away. Don't let your guilt and shame get in the way of enjoying Jesus. He longs to forgive. He longs to receive and accept. For some of you, it might just feel like a sense of abandonment. You've been left out of the picture like the blind man here, you're isolated. Listen, the blind man had friends who brought him to Jesus. And here at Cross of Grace, let me just say this. You're among friends who want to bring you to Jesus. You're among friends who want you to receive from Jesus, who want you to hear Jesus and see him and love him and treasure him. True friends want to help friends see and hear Jesus. And this should define the fellowship of our church. So if it's a sense of abandonment, "Ah, Jesus doesn't care about me, you're among friends who want to introduce you to Jesus. Join a community group. Join a discipleship group. Talk to some people. We love to talk about Jesus here and show each other Jesus. Mark's gospel has continued to show that Jesus is God in flesh, able to rule over seas and disease and demons and death. It's a massive story. But Mark's gospel also shows that Jesus cares for those who are far from him. He welcomes them, and he will welcome you. Don't miss the beauty in theological arguments. Jesus cares about those who come to him, and he makes the deaf hear. Hear him today. Let's pray. Father, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Open our eyes, open our ears to see and hear Jesus. Just like you, made blind men see and deaf men hear. Help us to see and hear the Savior. And for many of us, it's because you have opened our eyes and our ears to see and hear you that we love and worship you. So thank you for your compassion to sinful folk like us. And may we daily feel the joy of a powerful God who comes to love his people and rescue them. Amen.